Hey, my name is Vitaly Klopot, and this is the Business of Education podcast, the podcast for higher education professionals looking for insights in the business of education. Each episode, I will be attempting to bridge the gap between business, marketing, education technology, and social impact through conversations with guests and friends. So this week, I am talking to Elspeth Briscoe. Elspeth is the CEO and founder of Learning with Experts, a global classroom community that brings people together to learn from expert tutors and each other. Elspeth had a fledging career in tech in the dot-com boom era. She was employee number 30 in eBay and then subsequently joined Skype. And after a bit of a gap, she then led on the Guardian's digital transformation before founding Learning with Experts. We talked about her path so far, lessons learned, the vision for the company, and whether the world still needs more, albeit high quality, content. Enjoy. Okay, Elspeth, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. How are you? I'm really good. Yes. Yeah. Uh, another crazy and exciting week. Thank you. Where, um, where in the world are you? So I am based in Oxford. Our office, uh, which we're not in at the moment, is in the Oxford Centre for Innovation, which is full of crazy startups and lots of spin-outs from Oxford University. Um, and I live down a track in the middle of nowhere near Oxford. Nice. Um, it's a, not a bad place um, to, to be. Quite a nice part of the country, I think. So um could be worse. It's an amazing place to be. And it's also, uh, well, it's a beautiful place to be, but it's also obviously a centre of educational excellence. So we get exposed to all sorts of incredible and interesting people because of our location too. And and Oxford's also becoming quite a tech hub. Uh, there's, a, there's a lot of startup activity there, uh, which is interesting. Yeah, I, I noticed quite a lot of companies um, in and around Oxfordshire generally. I, I seem to, for whatever reason, associate Coventry with um, kind of the e-learning capital of, of England. There was probably, when I counted, about six or seven online education companies, if you like, that I knew of in a, in the random city that is Coventry. Uh, but it seems to be, uh, you know, diversifying itself a little look bit. look out um, coventry oxford is, exactly. is on its way <laughs> exactly so i thought we'd start by um just a, a quick synopsis and a summary of kind of how you got to where you are today i'd love to hear a little bit about your background i think you've had a pretty extensive career in tech and then eventually ended up um launching and, and founding a company um in the online education space so just take us through that journey if you may yeah, of course. So um, back in the 1990s, uh, I wrote a dissertation about the future of the internet. And believe it or not, that was kind of before people had email and even the web uh, when I wrote that dissertation. And some of it I got right, uh, which was a, a lot around actually communication, one-on-one -on -one communication and many-to-many -many communication. So the kind of email bit, um, I thought publishing would be more uh, pervasive than it has become on the web uh, and an impact on the kind of magazine companies um, and various other things. But that, that was how my career really started with my dissertation after university. Um, and my first job was with uh, an Omnicom agency who specialized in tech startups. So I was working, uh, my accounts were tech startups uh, in the dot-com boom time. So that ranged from kind of 
typical uh, Silicon Valley style startups who were going through IPOs and things to great big tech corporates like IBM and Philips. And it was really exciting, partly because of the time that we were in. Um, and then around the year 2000, I was there and I, I became an account director. And um, I got really interested in, in some of the tech startups. They were fascinating. So I decided to hop from agency side into um, the tech startup scene. And I worked for two or three tech startups that didn't work out. Uh, PwC backed one of them. So typical of the time, venture capital backed, made all the mistakes of the time as well, sort of hiring um, big flashy marketing agencies, that kind of thing. And I often think you learn more from your mistakes than you do the things that that go right sometimes. So, um, So that was a really amazing learning experience for me. And I met some incredible people. And actually, I think it was, I think it was the fourth startup that I worked for was, was eBay at the time, which of course now has become one of the rock stars of the internet. But, uh, when I joined, I was person number 30. And, um, it was in a really amazing company, even at the very early stage. Um, I specialized in working in the community teams originally. Um, so that was where my kind of love of human interaction on the internet really was born from and an understanding about business models where interaction between people um, can also be very sticky and also can relate to commerce so there's a commercial aspect to that so if you if you get people engaged in really big uh, and fruitful communities um, that that can be a very uh, beneficial commercial piece on that I also um, was in charge of the top sellers at eBay when I was there and um, eBay's model follows Pareto's law where 20% of the sellers give you 80% of the revenue so it became a really big and strategic role um, and a really interesting and exciting time being part of uh, part of eBay's story really and um, what I also discovered about myself is I really like companies that are disruptive and that don't follow the natural rule book so where there's no blueprint um, and you can actually innovate uh, in in a truly disruptive way it is really exciting for me so I, I moved on to Skype after eBay uh, and really did a, a similar thing. I mean, I was um, strategy director for telecoms. Telecoms was the, the um, financial earning piece. Um, equally exciting. Very different company. A lot more anarchic than eBay. Um, and uh, much more engineering-led. Uh, the engineering team was in Tallinn in Estonia. So I spent quite a lot of time out there, which was amazing. And then after Skype, I went um, to The Guardian, where uh, there was also quite a few people that I'd met earlier in my career. The Guardian newspaper wanted to turn digital um, and hired a few of us who'd been in those kind of companies to help help um, lead that that thing. So um, that that was amazing for me. But I guess where the, my kind of story becomes interesting is after a very long career in tech, I decided to do a complete career change um, and uh, call it a midlife crisis. But um, I decided to become a landscape designer. And genuinely thought I was going to become a landscape designer. So went to Oxford to study a a master's in landscape design and um, turned up with my laptop, obviously having spent years uh, working in tech environments. And it was a bit like being hit with a brick. Uh, You know, there was such a culture shock going back into education. Really exciting. Everyone else was there with their pen and paper. Um, This wasn't that long ago. So this was 11 years ago. Um, and I immediately put everyone onto Skype and we formed a little community all learning about landscape design. That's kind of in my background. My mum was a botany lecturer at Reading University. So I've always loved the landscape and things like that. Anyway, long story short, um, the 
principal college lecturer said to us we were the best performing group he'd seen in 25 years and directly attributed that to our use of technology in building a community to help us with our with our studies so that's one really relevant point to, to learning with experts and, and how I, uh, the company was formed the other is that um, when you study an arts-based subject, you tend to do something which is called a crit, where you stand up and sort of bare your soul and show your work, and the rest of the class inputs into uh, what their thoughts are, and you describe uh, why you've done what you've done, and that process is a really important part of the learning curve. So it's not just a one-on-one relationship with your teacher, it's a relationship with the entire class, and it's like a mini-community. Um, and so um, there was a bit of a light bulb moment for me during uh, and, and towards the end of that course that there was a really something missing in education and where education and technology meet. And that's the use of communities. And um, so I set up Learning with Experts after after that. Um, in 2011, um, between 2011 and 2015, I had three children. So um I uh, it was slow to start with, and um, but I, but I was really determined, especially in the landscape design and horticulture industry, to set up a business that could educate people. And I also thought, well, combining with that kind of community aspect, what if people could reach anyone in the world and be taught by really the most genuinely best people in their craft? And so I asked around, and in landscape design, there's this Dutch guy called Pete Aldolf who. Uh, appears to be like a god in landscape design everybody wants to learn from him and he's actually quite typical of of some designers and artists in that um he's not particularly extrovert he doesn't do loads of teaching he's not on the lecture circuit you don't see him at universities and he doesn't always know why he does what he does he's an incredible artist so what we did was actually team up with Pete Aldolf and um, Dr. Noel Kingsbury, who's a lecturer at Sheffield University, and the two of them together became teachers, and they were co-writers for 20 years anyway. So um, that was one of our first courses. Um, and since then, Learning with Experts has grown enormously. Um, we've taken several rounds of funding from venture capitalists and angels, and we've expanded all of our categories in quite an eBay-esque kind of way, actually. So we've gone from horticulture and landscape design and obviously eBay went from antiques and collectibles when I first started um, but we've progressed naturally into the arts first of all so we we have categories in food and drink and we work with people like Michelle Rue and Raymond Blanc um, and many others who you've only wetting store and we have categories such as photography, jewellery, floristry. We've just launched art and design and we're now going into business and entrepreneurship and finance and other consumer categories. Um, and one of the things that's the commonality about our teachers who we work with is um, they're all passionate about giving back to the next generation. Um, so what people don't necessarily know about people like Michelle Rue and Raymond Blanc, their household names, you see them on TV, they're incredible craftspeople, but they also um, are amazing teachers. Like Raymond Blanc's taught 34 Michelin-starred chefs most people have been taught by one of these two guys. We were filming with Michelle Rue yesterday in the Gavroche, actually, and um, the, his meticulous attitude to really caring about his students is amazing. So these people are not only brilliant at what they do, but they care about imparting knowledge too, and that's an important part of what we do. What's in it for somebody like Michelle Rue um, or other subject matter experts? What's your... 
uh, typical way of engaging with these, um, well, you've got this spectrum of, of pretty high level celebrities in the, in the food and uh, space at least. And, um, and then probably slightly lesser known, but still quite, um, uh, kind of serious subject matter experts. How, what, under what terms and how do you typically reach out and engage with those types of people when you're approaching them from a company yeah, so and a commercial perspective? A really interesting question. So as I said, we really care about um, people who are genuinely experts in what they do. And sometimes we talk internally about the experts expert. Like if, if you're a chef, who do you go to when you really need to know about um, how, how to make a souffle? And, and that person is Michelle Rue. Um, and so there are some people who are not celebrities and that's very okay with us. We're not in this for the celebrities. It just happens that some of the people who are excellent in their field, of course, are now on TV, etc. But to answer your question, so what's in it for them? We actually started off uh, working with authors. And it was partly because a lot of these very well acclaimed uh, people who were often lecturers and teachers as well, were a bit disillusioned with the publishing industry. They were generally making 10% royalties on their books. They were incredibly smart people who had a lot to give back to society through education and felt that there was a better way that that could work. So we give a profit share uh, to our tutors, which is more than they get from their publishers. And we also make it so that um, it's per student. So the more they scale, the more they earn, which seems a very fair way of doing it. Um, so those people who are particularly keen to drive volume and who are excellent at self-marketing uh, get more students than others. And those people who want a controlled group of students can do that. So it's a profit share, which works for both sides. And is there an upfront cost to the subject matter experts? So you take the burden of the creation of the materials in the course to begin with? So we uh, we have a couple of different ways of doing that. So um, what I've described to you so far is our B2C model. So it's our consumer-facing site. So it's where teachers teach directly to consumers. Um, in some instances, we work with a larger organisation. So there is a different commercial model for that. So we can talk about that in a minute when we work with universities and other organisations. But if you take um, a very classic B2C tutor, and um, let's say let's say that's Hugh Fanny Whittingstall. Um, he would, in fact, let's use a different example, um, Michelle Rue, who is teaching directly to, to consumers. Um, we uh, pay them for their time because we recognise that we're taking them out of their business. So we pay a TV type rate uh, for their time. Um, but we pick up all of the production costs and we own the content. And so it's not expensive for these people to, and it's low risk for these people to be part of our business um, and they are compensated for their time. Um, and then we know that we control the production and the content. And it's a really fundamental point of our DNA and our business proposition as well. A lot of ed tech companies will either be a platform or there'll be a content provider. Um, not that many do both. And I, my personal view is that it's really important to do both. So a bit like Apple in the early days, they were heavily criticized for doing both hardware and software. And the very specific reason that they did that is they wanted to control the user experience and to give people an incredible holistic experience. And that's what we do um, because we want people to feel when you're coming into a learning experience, that it's fun, that it's ex exciting, that it's not difficult. Um, and so by controlling the production, and we work with very high-end production people who've come from Channel 4 News, who've worked on some of the Attenborough stuff, 
Uh, we know the level of the quality of the type of filming and film lectures is one piece of what we do. Um, and also by controlling the classroom experience. So we've built our own platform where people interact with one another, a bit like you would in some kind of gaming industry or social network platform. Um, we know that that user is going to have a guaranteed good experience throughout their course. And for, from a tutor perspective, which was kind of your original question, these tutors who are incredible experts in their fields, and this applies to businesses as well as individuals, um, they don't want the pain of having to develop technology or know how to be excellent at producing videos or um, actually sometimes even building out a curriculum that is suitable for a digital environment. That's not their center of expertise. That's ours. So we control all of that piece and enable to take the pain away from them, really. That's the, the need we're fulfilling. Super interesting. Um, just before we, okay, I wanted to touch on on kind of the strategy piece specifically and the, and the content um, side of things. I made a mental bookmark for myself to ask you about why go and do a master's degree in uh, landscape design at one of the world's best universities. It's not typically a, uh, it's quite a vocational, obviously it's quite a vocational subject area. How do you think, and, and what are your thoughts on kind of the, uh, the the need for a qualification fundamentally in something as vocational as landscape design. Why so, did you feel that you needed a degree? So I didn't do a degree. I did it for a diploma, um, which is uh, very common in landscape design. So it's a year um, and a, it's equivalent of a master's course. And obviously this differs all over the world. Um, so to be clear, Learning with Experts has a global audience from 78 different countries. Um, but um, so that this question, I think, is a really interesting one. It's like, why, why do people feel that they need some sort of accreditation or a certificate or a, a badge of honor or a stamp? Or what is that? Um, yeah. And actually, in vocational subjects, you will find that it's uh, people pay more attention to who you learnt with necessarily than whether you've got some initials or an accredited stamp. So if you take photography, for example, one of our tutors is a guy called Michael Freeman. Um, and he is one of the best-selling photography authors on Amazon. He did go to Cambridge University. He's a very, very smart guy. Um, but people care more about the fact that they can say they've learnt with Michael Freeman than whether they've got an accredited certificate. And this is sometimes very true of crafts and arts and vocational subjects. Um, you will become an apprentice to somebody or you'll have a mentor like Michelle Rue to say that you've worked in the kitchens at Le Gavroche or you've been taught directly by Michelle Rue is probably more important than being able to say that you have got um, some certificate from the from Cordon Bleu. For, or, yeah. yeah. Um, yeah. That said, uh, and part of the reason we've structured in the way that we have is we really want to strip out all of the process, the politics, the red tape that, that seems to now come with education. It's become very bound in its own kind of processes, if you like, and particularly country by country. So if you take it on a global scale and you literally focus on uniting incredible teachers with people who are passionate about learning in communities, then magic happens. That said, so I recognise and we recognise as a business that accreditation can be important in terms of um, being able to be incredibly thorough that you've learnt specific aspects of a subject 
or that you're adhering to uh, some sort of qualifications criteria like off-qual. Obviously, we have in this country. Other countries are different. Um, so we we also work with a, a accredited bodies too. So we thought we would cover both bases. So one of our accredited courses is with the Royal Horticultural Society. We do RHS level two. We jump through many, many hoops to make sure that um, everything is audited, absolutely as it should be we're going through cpd accreditation ourselves now for all of our courses but for me that is really um, making sure that that quality standard is there um but to be able to, to to scale globally some of these accreditations are not as recognized as others in other countries what people really care about is the quality of the education the quality of the teaching and the experience they have when they come out the other side. I do find it fascinating, though, that people are quite obsessed with certificates. So we do give people certificates uh, when they finish their courses. Very important to people to have that that kind of accolade. Um, and that is just, I think, human nature. Yeah, I think the apprenticeship piece is, is really, really important. I think you framed it perfectly. In, in many, many scenarios, if you talk to people in the industry, they seem to only have two options of somebody's in it for the uh, knowledge or the piece of paper and, and the certificate at the end. But there's a there's a piece in the middle where in some of the more artsy subjects and the more vocational areas, as you said, I think it's, it's, it's more about who you studied from as opposed to where. And you still need a piece of paper to demonstrate who you studied from or, exactly. you know, be able to to essentially validate uh, that statement somehow. And, and that can only come with some kind of a badge or a, or a certificate or a diploma. Or and I, I do think it's important, actually, and because really what it is, accreditation is a kind of quality stamp to, to be able to say that you've been through some sort of rigor of process that is consistent, right? Um, and so part of our brand is around that. And I think it's a, it's a pervasive problem on the internet in general that we are now absolutely swamped with information if uh, and you know you can learn the simplest things potentially on youtube or, or so it seems um and yet you don't really know who you're learning from a lot of the time you don't know if the quality of the teaching or the information that they're giving you is right um you can social network on facebook but you can see already that's tipping over into a world where we're uncertain about the credibility of the information that we're being told, and even if the people are who they say they are. So what we're building is a very, very safe and trusted place where people can be ring-fenced and know that actually the quality of the teachers that they're getting and the quality of the learning experience will be very high. Now, that's a big uh, stable to set out to, to, to make that claim, but we're doing that largely by the people that we're working with and the establishment. Uh, so, you know, the, 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 the tutors that we choose to work with, but also with very transparent student feedback. Uh, so there isn't any kind of escape when you know if someone doesn't have a good experience we find out why um and that that's part of a really really good internet business as well as well as an mm. educational business so so do you see yourself more as not just a learning provider but also a curator and an aggregator of eventually some sort of a, a voice of authority if you like of well if you want to do a course in subject X, here's the person to study from. So with all of the noise and the internet, as you mentioned, you can pretty much study, if you're after knowledge per se, 
gaining knowledge or gaining access to knowledge is easy. Actually understanding what knowledge is good and what's bad and actually filtering through all of the noise, that's becoming more of the challenge. Yes. And so, okay. so, so, so that's a really, really critical point that I feel so strongly about um, is that having worked, um, and eBay is a good example of this, and it's an incredible company, um, and, and you know, Facebook is also an incredible company at its own right, right, but they will be the first to say they will describe themselves as enablers and therefore take no responsibility for the content on their sites. It's becoming and will become more so a massive problem with the internet itself. It's, it's exploded in its information and content. YouTube is the same. So we are taking responsibility and the word curation is incredibly important in what we do in that we are providing a social platform, if you like, a social education platform, but we are curating the content and taking responsibility for the fact that that is high quality content. And, and that sort of thinking it seems to be going slightly against the grain from uh, kind of uh, your typical venture capital um, partners and, and, and conversations that, that certainly VCs are having and, and angels are having around, well, what does the world need? And we certainly don't need more content. It's about something else now. So it, it's, it's that periphery, if you like, of uh, – not necessarily creating more content for the sake of it, but as you said, I think aggregating it and curating it in a way where yeah, you, so, you're building trust in the community. So I think it's very much in line um, with what VCs, and my experience is v- VCs and angels find attractive because we're actually disrupting um, something that's not working properly. So, so yes, people don't just want more content, but what we do is at the intersection of content um, a social platform and uh, publishing industry and education. There's a, there's an intersection here between industries that have been traditionally disparate. So if you take the best from the gaming industry, for example, look at the addiction that goes on with games like Fortnite, but the incredible graphics and the visual beauty that is is born out of many of these games. Um, and that people want to go back time and time and time again and beat their scores and be immersed in that world. Apply that magic to education. How powerful is that if you're getting people back time and time again because they're so enthused? If you combine that with um, incredible content that immerses you in an experience that you would never have, think Blue Planet going under the sea, you're not going to be able to go and do that yourself. It's very likely, especially in this kind of world at the moment. If we can immerse people in those experiences, take cues from the gaming industry, take the expertise of our educational environment around curriculum building, and also take the best bits of the kind of social networking that we've got, the real value that a community brings so that you're not isolated by yourself. I mean, originally with the MOOCs, which are the the massive open online courses, kind of the big first wave, if you like, of of online learning, they had 80% dropout rates. We, from the start, have had 80% completion rates, and it's because of the engagement. So we're not just curating content. We're making a whole new way of learning, um, which is really, really important and actually something that the VCs and angels love, I think. How much um, energy, resource, capital as a company are you spending on the tech behind the learning model itself? Um, Is that... Kind of, do you see that as being a core pillar of differentiation for the company, or is it an aggregation of existing kind of solutions? 
Oh, um, it's, it's totally um, our, our sweet spot, and we are developing the technology ourselves. But we are also uh, piecing together the uh, bits that obviously um, ca- can be used. So it's a combination of, of both of those things. But yeah, I mean, we own the IP for the platform, and it is a unique uh, social learning experience. But we also enable it to be integrated with existing um existing platforms as needed so a good example is we work with the university of buckingham uh so they are an established university they're the largest teach training university in the uk um so if you're a teacher and you want to do a master's in teach training you go to the university of buckingham um they have quite an established uh you know login system they're a whole university tech uh ours is easy to to integrate so we're making sure that we can plug into other people's tech um but we do own the ip not only for the platform but also for the content as i was saying earlier this is this is a with our b2c clients we own the content with the university of buckingham for example they will own the content and so from the university perspective they are accessing or licensing the platform itself or the content creation piece so they we we create the content so they pay us to create the content at that level and obviously they're experiencing our expertise in content creation um and they license the platform and then there is a profit share per student got it um and just to go back to kind of your your typical consumer who is your typical consumer are they looking at obviously the 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 areas that you're in floristry antiques well-being do you see these as more of kind of a, a hobbyist type um learners or are they still other people that are looking to do this from a career perspective um, so we, we look to own that full journey right from beginner through to absolute professional. So if someone was upskilling, for example, in a subject, they can leap in at the middle of um, a learning journey. And we refer to them as learning journeys. You can come in at the beginning with a subject you know nothing about as a hobbyist. And we do see people do this. We've got some lovely case studies of people coming in and learning something. And then it, eventually it becomes their profession. Um, so, so our intention is to earn, own that in, entire journey. In terms of demographics, it's quite interesting as well, because when we first started out, obviously, as I was saying, our kind of heritage is landscape design and horticulture. We had a, an older demographic than you would expect for a normal e-commerce company, because like I was saying, we're kind of at the intersection of e-commerce, education, content provider. Um, and um, it, we were slightly biased towards females. Um, so, so that's an unusual demographic potentially. Um, but as we've spread and broadened our mix of, of content and courses, uh, we're now 50-50 male-female, 78 different countries, generally over 30s, but coming down. Yeah, from what I, uh, at least in the uh, kind of four credit um, degree space online, I think it's still majority female, um, about 60, 65% female, in, at least in the higher education space from a, a university point of view. So um, there's definitely a connection between people sort of reaching uh, the age where they may have had a career and then having children. Um, yep. And so often people will reskill or upskill at that point. What's quite interesting is also there is a demographic who will reskill or upskill at retirement. Um, you know, we have a lovely case study of a lady called Anne Voss. Uh, she actually has hearing problems. She's over 80 and, um, 
And she uh, did a course with us, um, a floristry course, and, you know, is, is practicing. Um, and we have other case studies of, of people who have really done amazing things and life-changing things. And, and uh, there's one guy actually who did a course with Michael Freeman, the photography course I was talking about. Um, and he turned out to be from Silicon Valley. And he was the person that uh, was working on the camera for the latest iPhone. And um, they got chatting again, the power of communities in their classroom and uh, ended up last year with Michael flying out there to go and consult on the iPhone camera. Um, Amazing. These these little connections happen in classrooms, which are quite powerful and important. Amazing. Um, yeah, I, I, I'd love to see more businesses, more online learning businesses catering for a slightly older population slightly older demographic it's just not enough of it well, and i think the challenge is is to actually uh it's it's the constraint in the design that will lead to a, a kind of the older population actually being comfortable with the technology and sticking with it it's it's most companies are just really over complicating things all of the bells and whistles that you've got and it, i think it just puts a lot of the older generations off being able to study in a, in a kind of secure, simple manner online. Exactly right. I mean, that, this all comes back to the user experience, right? Because it's it's really interesting that we started as a consumer company. And so I um, hired people who were, ha- had expertise in making websites look attractive for consumers, like e-commerce type backgrounds. In ed tech, you don't very often see that. It often looks like it's been built by a software developer or someone in yep. education. And, and somehow that takes the magic away because actually if you're really passionate about a subject and you want to learn about it, whether that's history or finance or photography or or something medical or floristry or whatever it might be, you really your visual currency is part of it, but also the ease of use is part of it. So approaching it from a consumer angle, which we did, uh, is interesting now that we've become a B2B company as well. And the way that that happened is also quite interesting. So I talked about Dr. Noel Kingsbury earlier, who is a Sheffield University lecturer in horticulture. He introduced us to the RHS because he said oh, they could really do this. In jewellery, we're working with Joanna Hardy, who's the kind of go-to commentator from the BBC on jewellery, works on the Antiques Roadshow. She said, oh, the Goldsmiths apprentices really need this. She was on the board of trustees at the Goldsmiths. Um, we started working with a guy called Professor Samuel Gray, who's the person who's the former chief knowledge officer for the NHS. Um, he introduced breast cancer screening in this country, an incredible guy, a medic. Um, and he has done the same thing. He's introduced us to the NHS and said, this is what they need. Uh, so also by working with these kind of individual experts it's uh, and building a very simple consumer learning experience, which is actually a lovely experience for an individual. Businesses are now starting to come to us because that's sort of what they need too. They've become, like education itself, very bound in process and tech and integrations. And actually the user experience is, is at the heart of all this. Yeah learning is hard enough so we the least we can do is make it aesthetically pleasing and um and fun and fun exactly exactly um where is the company going from from kind of here on um where do you see the company in five years time 
Um, so our plan is to be the default educator in this space for um, online learning, for particularly for vocational, uh, for where, and I think it will naturally happen. What I love about kind of marketplaces in, in technology is, is they find their markets, right? Uh, so there is clearly a gap here uh, in our existing real life education systems and online. And so the consumers decide um, they decide what works. And, um, you know, we've got extreme growth at the moment. Many ed tech companies have. Um, but I think also one of the things that I really like to look at is repeat purchase. Um, again, a very consumer e-commerce type of approach to things. But if people are having a really powerful experience, they will come back and they tell their friends. Um, so we want to own this space uh, to your question. And we want to really, really help businesses universities, educational establishments who want the magic of learning back. I think that's a really powerful thing for people to to reclaim in, in such a difficult time as well. What can um, a learner expect in terms of um, kind of the learning experience when, when somebody signs up? Um, what would you say is some of the unique, unique characteristics? Um, how much of the delivery is synchronous versus asynchronous? How do you think about those sorts of things? So um, we've thought about them a lot and we are, uh, uh, as per what I was saying just now, actually really driven by student needs. So so what, what suits our students? And we've, we're, we're constantly kind of talking to them, surveying them, understanding what their needs are. And so um, we built a kind of two-tiered system, one which we call the peer experience and one which we call the expert experience. We didn't want to make the costs too much so that this couldn't be pervasive worldwide. So for the peer experience, what you do is you go into an online classroom, you get pre-recorded video lectures. So it can be any time of day or night that you watch those. And they will also be contextual. So suddenly you're taken down a mine in Burma with Joanna Hardy looking at jewellery, or you're taken into a garden in Devon, or you're taken somewhere else in the world. Um, So that can't be done in a live context. So there's pre-recorded video lectures, there are downloadable notes, there are links to book lists, and you're in a collective classroom with 20 peers. And for that, um, you pay £35, which is kind of the price of an expensive coffee table book. And that's our kind of standard product, if you like. Our other experience is the expert experience, where you get everything that I've just described with peer and you are chatting to your peers and you're sharing assignments, et cetera, but you get your expert or your team of your expert marking your work and giving you feedback. So you get the, the um, team of Michelle Rue, and he, he himself actually goes into the classrooms and is giving you feedback on your souffle that you've just made. That's amazing. I think anybody who's into food and cares enough about kind of quality and, and detail. My wife's a chef, so I, I speak from experience. I think she would pay uh, well above the money you're talking about to kind of just get feedback from somebody like Michelle. Yeah, Lee. and so some of our... There's value in, in that. Yeah, I mean, that's what we hear, that it is amazing value. And, and um, you know, some of some of our longer, more accredited courses, like um, our diploma courses, you can do a full diploma with River Cottage, Hugh Fernie Whittingstall and all of his chefs. Um, it's over a thousand pounds. But still, if you benchmark that against uh, what you would pay in some other kind of private institutions, it's incredible what people are charging. Um, and, and actually, we want to, to keep the costs uh, to... We're, we're based on what works for the tutors and for the organization and what the market decides. Um, 
and th that's where we're pitting. Is there a sweet spot? Are you testing with kind of uh, the pricing side of things, or do you prefer as a company to kind of have uh, you know, quality? Sorry, quantity of students in a certain kind of. Um, um, how should I put it, kind of uh, economies of scale when it comes to the delivery of, of the courses or what, what's the reason that, you know, some might say you're priced relatively cheap? So um, we're typical of a tech startup, I would say, in that we are constantly testing and learning. It's always test and learn. Um, and so our B2B models actually are, are different and um, sometimes uh, the prices, for example, for master's courses and things are determined by the organization themselves. Um, but very much, uh, I think, pricing, and particularly in ed tech, is something that's evolving. Um, uh, and, yeah, we use a test and learn methodology. And, and by region as well, we look at what, what works in different countries. Do you see yourself partnering with universities in a more embedded kind of uh way in the future so you mentioned obviously um the the teacher training with buckingham is there anything else in the pipeline or is there a, an angle to actually getting some of your existing courses or future courses accredited by higher education institutions and is there a value in that yeah totally yes i mean um so we're in we've got a very full pipeline so we're in conversation with with a lot of uh varying different educational establishments including universities um right through to corporates actually and right through to healthcare systems as i said um whereby our existing suite of consumer courses is is beneficial to their audience um so there is a way that we can be a course provider in that way and also with the universities obviously we've now got established experience of working with some of the best and we've got you know oxford professors on our advisory board as well so uh, absolutely we are working with and intend to work with universities continually not just in the uk as well perfect so what what are the plans internationally um <laughs> funny that you mentioned it yeah i was going to ask kind of um you know specifically on, on strategy around the international piece um some of the it seems to me at least looking from the outside in that at, at least from a so far, it's a UK-centric um, uh, business from a, a subject matter expert perspective. So, you know, you mentioned lots of people that, that have been on the BBC, you know, certainly Michelle Rue, et cetera, has got a more international and broader appeal. But how do you see yourself uh, growing or, or, or diversifying internationally? Yeah, so it's a really interesting question. And actually, it, perhaps just the, the tutors I mentioned happen to be UK-focused, but actually we do have quite a lot of tutors um, who are in the US or Denmark or across Europe or um Eastern Europe, you know, uh, any, anywhere, actually. In first, fact, we've just done our first course, an art course, which is um, going out to the Chinese market and is translated into Chinese. So um, we really are a, very much a global platform. So um, the, there's a number of organizations, and um, I, can't, I can't necessarily talk about some of the ones in the pipeline, but I can, I, what I can say is that uh, um, well-being and healthcare organizations are a big focus for us in the next year. And you'll be hearing some announcements on that. Um, and we are also very keen to to, uh, to partner with the universities and higher education establishments globally. Fantastic. Well, it sounds like you've got your work cut out. There's a lot going on. Um, 
uh, I'm conscious of your time, so I just wanted to to thank you first and foremost for for spending the time and and giving us a bit of an insight into the company and, and the direction and the future. Um, is there any kind of one single message or takeaway that, that you want to take the opportunity and maybe share with listeners, et cetera, be it, you know, are you looking for specific um, people to join the company or is there, is there a specific um, insight or message on, on kind of uh, the delivery model or anything else that you, you'd like listeners to kind of really take away if it was just a single item? Yeah. So I think a couple of things, um, so one that I, I think education needs to get its magic back, and I think we're, we're part of that. Uh, so if you are an organization who are looking to turn to online learning in some form and need help with that, uh, we are well-placed to do that and experienced at doing that with organizations and individuals across the suite. Um, and then the second point, seeing as you asked, is we're looking for a, a, a head of digital marketing. So... If there is anybody out there, we are specifically looking for people who come from e-commerce backgrounds. Um, it's a difficult mix, uh, but actually um, the front end is, as I was saying, all about the students and the consumer experience. So that's probably where we're different from a lot of other ed tech companies. Awesome. Thank you so, so much. And um, I, I'd love to genuinely you know, spend another hour talking to you in a couple of months time. Uh, and just to, to kind of really, uh, see, see where you are in the roadmap and, and see how you're getting on. And, um, so couldn't thank you enough. And, um, thanks for, for taking the time and speaking to me. And thank you so much for having me. And I, I'd just like to say, I absolutely love what you're doing. I've listened to some of your other podcasts as well, of course. Um, and I think it's, you know, true, true to form. I'm a big believer in the collective and communities. And um, I think it's really important that people in this space are continuing to talk to each other. So it's great to be here. That means a lot, Elspeth. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. Have a good day. Bye. Bye. That's it for this episode. For really useful links and references to topics we covered, please check out businessofeducation.co.uk. I really try and go above and beyond connecting what was covered to high quality external resources so you can have some really tangible and actionable quick wins. Please, please, please share this with anybody in the business of education you think this would add value to. And lastly, I'd love to hear your feedback. If you'd like to be on the show yourself or recommend someone, please reach out on LinkedIn on Vitaly Klopot, that's V-I-T-A-L-Y, K-L-O-P-O-T and write me a note. I'll be sure to get back to you. Thank you.